0: Chapter Eleven of *The First Men in the Moon* by H.G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Cliff Stone of Sydney, Australia. Chapter Eleven: The Moon Calf Pastures. So we two poor terrestrial castaways, lost in that wild-growing moon jungle, crawled in terror before the sounds that had come upon us. We crawled, as it seemed. A long time before we saw either selenite or mooncalf, though we heard the bellowing and gruntulous noises of these latter continually drawing nearer to us. We crawled through stony ravines, over snow slopes, amidst fungi that ripped like thin bladders at our thrust, emitting a watery humour, over a perfect pavement of things like puffballs and beneath interminable thickets of scrub. And ever more helplessly our eyes sought for our abandoned sphere. The noise of the moon calves would at times be a vast, flat, calf-like sound. At times it rose to an amazed and wrothy bellowing, and again it would become a clogged bestial sound as though these unseen creatures had sought to eat and bellow at the same time. Our first view was but an inadequate transitory glimpse, yet none the less disturbing because it was incomplete. Kavor was crawling in front at the time and he first was aware of their proximity he stopped dead, arresting me with a single gesture. A crackling and smashing of the scrub appeared to be advancing directly upon us, and then, as we squatted close and endeavoured to judge of the nearness and direction of this noise, there came a terrific bellow behind us, so close and vehement that the tops of the bayonet scrub bent before it, and one felt the breath of it hot and moist. And, turning about, we saw indistinctly through a crowd of swaying stems, the mooncalf's shining sides, and the long line of its back loomed out against the sky. Of course it is hard for me now to say how much I saw at that time, because my impressions were corrected by subsequent observation. First of all impressions was its enormous size. The girth of its body was some four score feet, its length perhaps two hundred. Its sides rose and fell with its laboured breathing. I perceived that its gigantic flabby body lay along the ground, and that its skin was of a corrugated white dappling into blackness along the backbone. But of its feet we saw nothing. I think also that we saw then the profile, at least, of the almost brainless head, with its fat encumbered neck, its slobbering omnivorous mouth, its little nostrils and tight shut eyes, for the mooncalf invariably shut its eyes in the presence of the sun. We had a glimpse of a vast red pit as it opened its mouth to bleat and bellow again. We had a breath from the pit, and then the monster heeled over like a ship, dragged forward along the ground, creasing all its leathery skin, rolled again and so wallowed past us, smashing a path amidst the scrub, and was speedily hidden from our eyes by the dense interlacings beyond. Another appeared more distantly, and then another, and then as though he was guiding these animated lumps of provender to their pasture, a selenite came momentarily into ken. My grip upon Cavour's foot became convulsive at the sight of him, and we remained motionless and peering long after he had passed out of our range. By contrast with the moon calves, he seemed a trivial being, a mere ant, scarcely five feet high. He was wearing garments of some leathery substance so that no portion of his actual body appeared, but of this, of course, we were entirely ignorant. He presented himself, therefore, as a compact, bristling creature, having much of the quality of a complicated insect, with whip-like tentacles and a clanging arm projecting from his shining cylindrical body case. The form of his head was hidden by his enormous, many-spiked helmet, We discovered afterwards that he used the spikes for prodding refractory moon calves, and a pair of goggles of darkened glass, set very much at the side, gave a bird-like quality to the metallic apparatus that covered his face. His arms did not project beyond his body case, and he carried himself upon short legs that, wrapped though they were in warm coverings, seemed to our terrestrial eyes inordinately flimsy. They had very short thighs, very long shanks, and little feet. In spite of his heavy looking clothing, he was progressing with what would be, from the terrestrial point of view, very considerable strides, and his clanging arm was busy. The quality of his motion during the instant of his passing suggested haste and a certain anger, and soon after we had lost sight of him, we heard the bellow of a mooncalf change abruptly into a short, sharp squeal followed by the scuffle of its acceleration. And gradually that bellowing receded and then came to an end as if the pastures sought had been attained. We listened for a space, the moon world was still, but it was some time before we resumed our crawling search for the vanished sphere. When next we saw moon calves, they were some little distance away from us in a place of tumbled rocks. The less vertical surfaces of the rocks were thick with a speckled green plant growing in dense mossy clumps upon which these creatures were browsing. We stopped at the edge of the reeds amidst which we were crawling at the sight of them, peering out at them and looking round for a second glimpse of a selenite. They lay against their food like stupendous slugs, huge greasy holes, eating greedily and noisily with a sort of sobbing avidity. They seemed monsters of mere fatness, clumsy and overwhelmed to a degree that would make a Smithfield ox seem a model of agility. Their busy, writhing, chewing mouths and eyes closed, together with the appetising sound of their munching, made up an effect of animal enjoyment that was singularly stimulating to our empty frames. Hogs, said Kabor, with unusual passion, disgusting hogs, and after one glare of angry envy, crawled off through the bushes to our right i stayed long enough to see that the speckled plant was quite hopeless for human nourishment then crawled after him nibbling a quill of it between my teeth presently we were arrested again by the proximity of a selenite and this time we were able to observe him more exactly now we could see that the selenite covering was indeed clothing and not a sort of crustacean integument he was quite similar in his costume to the former one we had glimpsed, except that ends of something like wadding were protruding from his neck, and he stood on a promontory of rock and moved his head this way and that as though he was surveying the crater. We lay quite still, fearing to attract his attention if we moved, and after a time he turned about and disappeared. We came upon another drove of moon calves, bellowing up a ravine and then we passed over a place of sounds. Sounds of beating machinery as if some huge hall of industry came near the surface there. And while these sounds were still about us, we came to the edge of a great open space, perhaps 200 yards in diameter and perfectly level. Save for a few lichens that advanced from its margin, The space was bare and presented a powdery surface of a dusty yellow colour. We were afraid to strike out across this space, as as it presented less obstruction to our crawling down the scrub, we went down upon it and began very circumspectly to skirt its edge. For a little while, the noises from below ceased, and everything, save for the faint stir of the growing vegetation, was very still. Then abruptly, there began an uproar, louder, more vehement, and nearer than any we had so far heard. Of a certainty it came from below. Instinctively, we crouched as flat as we could, ready for a prompt plunge into the thicket beside us. Each knock and throb seemed to vibrate through our bodies. Louder grew this throbbing and beating, and that irregular vibration increased until the whole moon world seemed to be jerking and pulsing. "'Cover!' whispered Kavor, and I turned towards the bushes. At that instant came a thud like the thud of a gun, and then a thing happened It still haunts me in my dreams. I had turned my head to look at Cavour's face, and thrust out my hand in front of me as I did so, and my hand met nothing. I plunged suddenly into a bottomless hole. My chest had something hard, and I found myself with my chin on the edge of an unfathomable abyss that had suddenly opened beneath me, my hand extended stiffly into the void. The whole of that flat circular area was no more than a gigantic lid that was now sliding sideways, from off the pit it had covered into a slot prepared for it. Had it not been for Cavour, I think I should have remained rigid, hanging over this margin and staring into the enormous gulf below, until at last the edges of the slot scraped me off and hurled me into its depths. But Cavour had not received the shock that had paralysed me. He had been a little distance from the edge when the lid had first opened, and perceiving the peril that held me helpless, gripped my legs and pulled me backward. I came into a sitting position, crawled away from the edge for a space on all fours, then staggered up and ran after him across the thundering, quivering sheet of metal. It seemed to be swinging open with a steadily accelerated velocity, and the bushes in front of me shifted sideways as I ran. I was none too soon. Cavor's back vanished amidst the bristling thicket, And as i scrambled up after him the monstrous valve came into its position with a clang for a long time we lay panting not daring to approach the pit but at last very cautiously and bit by bit we crept into a position from which we could peer down the bushes about us creaked and waved with the force of a breeze that was blowing down the shaft we could see nothing at first except smooth vertical walls descending at last into an impenetrable black and then very gradually we became aware of a number of very faint little lights going to and fro for a time that stupendous gulf of mystery held us so that we forgot even our sphere in time as we grew more accustomed to the darkness we could make out very small dim elusive shapes moving about among those needle-point illuminations we peered amazed and incredulous "'understanding so little that we could find no words to say. "'We could distinguish nothing that would give us a clue "'to the meaning of the faint shapes we saw. "'What can it be?' I asked. "'What can it be? "'The engineering. "'They must live in these caverns during the night "'and come out during the day. Cavour, I said. "'Can they be... "'That it was something like... "'Men?' "'That was not a man.' we dare risk nothing. We dare do nothing until we find the sphere. We can do nothing until we find the sphere. He assented with a groan and stirred himself to move. He stared about him for a space, sighed and indicated a direction. We struck out through the jungle. For a time we crawled resolutely, then with diminishing vigour. Presently among great shapes of flabby purple there came a noise of trampling and cries about us. We lay close and for a long time the sounds went to and fro and very near, but this time we saw nothing. I tried to whisper to Cavour that I could hardly go without food much longer, but my mouth had become too dry for whispering. Cavour I said, I must have food. He turned a face full of dismay towards me. "'It's a case for holding out,' he said. "'But I must,' I said. "'And look at my lips. "'I've been thirsty some time. "'If only some of that snow had remained. "'It's clean gone. "'We're driving from Arctic to Tropical "'at the rate of a degree a minute.' "'I gnawed my hand. "'The sphere,' he said. "'There is nothing for it but the sphere.' "'We roused ourselves to another spurt of crawling.' My mind ran entirely on edible things, on the hissing profundity of summer drinks. More particularly, I craved for beer. I was haunted by the memory of a sixteen-gallon cask that had swaggered in my limpny cellar. I thought of the adjacent larder, and especially of steak and kidney pie, tender steak and plenty of kidney, and rich, thick gravy between. Ever and again I was seized with fits of hungry yawning. We came to flat places overgrown with fleshy red things, monstrous coralline growths. As we pushed against them, they snapped and broke. I noted the quality of the broken surfaces. The confounded stuff certainly looked of a biteable texture, Then it seemed to me that it smelt rather well. I picked up a fragment and sniffed at it. Cavour, I said in a hoarse undertone. He glanced at me with his face screwed up. "'Don't!' he said. I put down the fragment, and we crawled on through this tempting fleshiness for a space. Cavour, I asked. "'Why not?' "'Poison,' I heard him say, but he did not look round. We crawled some way before I decided. "'I'll chance it,' said I. He made a belated gesture to prevent me. I stuffed my mouth full. He crouched, watching my face, his own twisted into the oddest expression.' It's good, I said. Oh, Lord, he cried. He watched me munch, his face wrinkled between desire and disapproval, then suddenly succumbed to appetite and began to tear off huge mouthfuls. For a time we did nothing but eat. The stuff was not unlike a terrestrial mushroom, only it was much laxer in texture, and as one swallowed it, it warmed the throat. At first we experienced a mere mechanical satisfaction in eating. Then our blood began to run warmer, and we tingled at the lips and fingers, and then new and slightly irrelevant ideas came bubbling up in our minds. "'It's good,' said I, "'infernally good. What a home for our surplus population! Our poor surplus population!' And I broke off another large portion. It filled me with a curiously benevolent satisfaction that there was such good food in the moon.' The depression of my hunger gave way to an irrational exhilaration. The dread and discomfort in which I had been living vanished entirely. I perceived the moon no longer as a planet from which I most earnestly desired the means of escape, but as a possible refuge from human destitution. I think I forgot the selenites, the moon calves, the lid, and the noises completely so soon as I had eaten that fungus. Cavour replied to my third repetition, of my surplus population remark, with similar words of approval. I felt that my head swam, but I put this down to the stimulating effect of food after a long fast. Excellent discovery, yours, Kabor, said I. Send only to the Tato. What do you mean? asked Kabor. Discovery of the moon. Send only to the Tato. I looked at him, SHOCKED AT HIS SUDDENLY hoarse VOICE AND BY THE BADNESS OF HIS ARTICULATION. IT OCCURRED TO ME IN A FLASH THAT HE WAS INTOXICATED, POSSIBLY BY THE FUNGUS. IT ALSO OCCURRED TO ME THAT HE ERRED IN IMAGINING THAT HE HAD DISCOVERED THE MOON. HE HAD NOT DISCOVERED IT, HE HAD ONLY REACHED IT. I TRIED TO LAY MY HAND ON HIS ARM AND EXPLAIN THIS TO HIM, BUT THE ISSUE WAS TOO SUBTLE FOR HIS BRAIN. It was also unexpectedly difficult to express. After a momentary attempt to understand me, I remember wondering if the fungus had made my eyes as fishy as his. He set off upon some observations on his own account. We are, he announced, with a solemn hiccup, the cruces of what we eat and drink. He repeated this, and as I was now in one of my subtle moods, I determined to dispute it. Possibly I wandered a little from the point, but Cavour certainly did not attend at all properly. He stood up as well as he could, putting a hand on my head to steady himself which was disrespectful, and stood staring about him, quite devoid now of any fear of the moon-beings. I tried to point out that this was dangerous for some reason, that was not perfectly clear to me, but the word dangerous had somehow got mixed with indiscreet and came out rather more like injurious than either, and after an attempt to disentangle them I resumed my argument, addressing myself principally to the unfamiliar but attentive coralline growths on either side. I felt that it was necessary to clear up this confusion between the moon and a potato at once. I wandered into a long parenthesis on the importance of precision of definition and argument. I did my best to ignore the fact that my bodily sensations were no longer agreeable in some way that i have now forgotten my mind was led back to projects of colonisation we must annex this moon i said there must be no shilly-shally this is part of the white man's burthen kavoor we are satap mean satraps n'empire caesar never dreamt Bin all in the newspapers. Cavouricia, Bedfordicia, Bedfordicia, limited, mean unlimited, practically. Certainly, I was intoxicated. I embarked upon an argument to show the infinite benefits our arrival would confer on the moon. I involved myself in a rather difficult proof that the arrival of Columbus was, on the whole, beneficial to America. I found I had forgotten the line of argument I had intended to pursue and continued to repeat, similar to Columbus, to fill up time. From that point my memory of the action of that abominable fungus becomes confused. I remember vaguely that we declared our intention of standing no nonsense from any confounded insects, that we decided it ill became men to hide shamefully upon a mere satellite that we equipped ourselves with huge armfuls of the fungus, whether for missile purposes or not I do not know, and heedless of the stabs of the bayonet scrub, we started forth into the sunshine. Almost immediately we must have come upon the Selenites. There were six of them, and they were marching in single file over a rocky place, making the most remarkable piping and whining sounds. They all seemed to become aware of us at once, "'All instantly became silent and motionless, "'like animals with their faces turned towards us. "'For a moment I was sobered. "'Insects,' murmured Kavor. "'Insects! "'And they think I'm going to crawl about on my stomach, "'on my vertebrated stomach?' "'Stomach!' he repeated slowly, "'as though he chewed the indignity. "'Then suddenly, with a sort of fury, "'he made three vast strides and leapt towards them. "'He leapt badly.' He made a series of somersaults in the air, whirled right over them and vanished with an enormous splash amidst the cactus bladders. What the Selenites made of this amazing, and to my mind undignified, eruption from another planet I have no means of guessing. I seem to remember the sight of their backs as they ran in all directions, but I am not sure. All these last incidents before oblivion came are vague and faint in my mind. I know I made a step to follow Cavour, and tripped and fell headlong among the rocks. I was, I am certain, suddenly and vehemently ill. I seem to remember a violent struggle on being gripped by metallic clasps. My next clear recollection is that we were prisoners, at we knew not what depths beneath the moon's surface. We were in darkness amidst strange, distracting noises. Our bodies were covered with scratches and bruises, and our heads racked with pain end of chapter 11.